0: Welcome to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates. And I am Kathy Ryan. And you are here again at Heal Well's Healthcare Podcast. And really, it's a podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science. We love meaningful dissent. And we love to support our fellow humans and making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us today for another rousing conversation with uh, a smart and compassionate guest who's going to stretch our minds and make us think about things a little bit differently. Please make sure to go onto social media and all the places where you tell people how you're spending your days and let them know how much you love interdisciplinary, share and like and love and all the things. And remember that this season, season three, we're running a little contest that if you go and post a review, let's say when you go and post a review you may be the lucky winner uh we might read your review on the show live and if that happens you will get to pick if you want a mug a t-shirt or 30 minutes of unfettered conversation with cal and kathy about any topic of your choosing so get out there on apple podcasts and wherever else you leave reviews about podcasts and say some things about why you give us uh 45 minutes to an hour of your life every week to learn about cool stuff in the world So, as always, we like to start the show with a little pun, and in honor of our guest today, uh, we've got a research-based pun. It was actually, um, I was quite surprised to find that uh, there are quite a few research puns, although, you know, now that I think about it, people involved in research are kind of nerdy, and puns and nerdiness kind of go together, so maybe it's really not that strange. Um, But uh, I I had a hard time sort of narrowing it down. So I think the one that I've settled on is quite simple. And it's that research finds that taller people sleep longer.
1: <laughs> oh, so,
0: without, <laughs> right, oh, yeah. Kathy, you feel that in her sides all the way in British Columbia. Uh, so, Kathy, what's uh, new? Is there anything we should know about things in British Columbia or about your own life and musings?
1: Um, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. No news is good news. Um, yeah, same here. We're, uh, we're in the sweltering July heat of Washington, D.C., and uh, that is, um, I guess, good. I mean, I do kind of like when the planet does what it should do, but I know that it's been mighty hot other places, so it's not doing what it should do in lots of other places, but um, we can't really blame the planet because we haven't really done what we should do for the planet. So <laughs> without further ado, uh, we will welcome today's guest Gene Dockery, who is going to, uh, tell you about themselves and, and then we'll fill in any gaps that maybe we feel like are important to know about this person, but, uh, welcome to the show, Jean, thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, I am Jean Dockery, uh, and I use they, them pronouns. I am a, a non-binary, uh, licensed professional counselor. Um, I'm licensed in the state of Ohio. Um, and I am also a PhD student. Um, I'm entering my third year. Um, so I've finished almost all of my coursework. Um, and I've taken so many classes on research that they kind of all blend together now. But it's um, <laughs> at least seven, nope, eight, eight graduate level uh, four credit hour classes, including quantitative and qualitative research. Um, so that's some of my background and expertise in that. But I will also say that I am published um, on advocacy, therapeutic interventions for working with um, artistic modalities for trans youth um, and supporting international students during the pandemic. Um, so um, I've got some experience with that. And I'm also working on a research study based in um, investigating cyber racism in online counseling spaces. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I I do a lot of stuff. Oh, I also have a manuscript I'm working on for liberation psychology with queer college students. So
0: cool. there's a lot there. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot there. I'm like, well, we brought you on to talk about one thing, but we're just gonna see what happens. I,
1: I know. I'm not sure where to start.
0: <laughs> not either well i i the reason that we um reached out to gene is that they were on a, another podcast called queersplaining and talking about some uh, questionable research that has uh, long informed incorrectly public opinion about um I don't even know I mean uh, my my brain wants to say latent homosexuality which isn't really a thing and <laughs>
2: But it's what the paper says well, right. in scare quotes. Okay, good. That's what I did. So,
0: so um, I, I think I'll, I'll let you lay the groundwork, Gene, I'd love to use that study and its awfulness as our starting place. And then we'll see where we go from there. Um, we, as I mentioned, we're this month in, in Healwell's private interdisciplinary online community. Our, our theme is bad research and the damage that it does. And so this fits in kind of perfectly. Uh, so take it, take it away.
2: Okay. So this is a study and it was published decades ago. So it's old research. Um, and I feel like it's really important to contextualize this for people who maybe haven't been to college or their their degree wasn't something that focused on a lot of research papers and writing. Um, if you give a professor a paper that has citations that are more than 10 years old and they're not some kind of foundational thing or, you know, you're working on a history piece, they don't want it you get in trouble. Um, You have to have recent research. They also really want it to be evidence-based. And one of the things about this paper is that it inspired an additional paper that basically tore it to teensy tiny pieces. Um, (laughs) So um, not only is it outdated, but it's also framed in this idea of, um, like Cal said, latent homosexuality. Um, And you've probably seen a lot of jokes about this kind of broad area of people who are really homophobic are actually gay. Um, so they're the the self-hating gays. And we can't say that those people don't exist. They definitely do. Um, but I also feel like it's really important to note that gay people who hate themselves are part of the, are not, we made them right. Our modern society with all of its connotations about what it means to be heteronormative and cisgender, um, and the the social castes that we've basically created here in modern America, are what creates that. It is inflicting trauma onto queer people. Um, so they created this system, and then they would like to blame us for being the problem. And in fact, they do it in a way that frames these incredibly homophobic folks. As being part of our community so that we're hurting ourselves, that they aren't the problem, that they hold no responsibility for what they've done. Um, so this is a really toxic narrative. And not only is the research faulty, but it's something that like when people make that joke, when you see that meme online about it, you should push back on that. And if you want, you can link this podcast in that or what I did with Queersplaining with Callie Wright, because um, we break it down in, in a lot of depth there. Um, I'm really proud of Callie for taking that two hour screed and putting into an actual podcast
0: episode.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Truly a brilliant editor. It is Adams et al. And it is, is homophobia associated with homosexual arousal? Um, so I don't love the word homosexual, but we're not going to give this study more than it needs. So we're going to use the words that they used because that's who they are. Yeah. Um, so, this was a psychology research department. I believe it was in georgia um and people were given partial court cre- course credit for taking for for being part of this so there were it was it was incentivized um that's kind of a universal truth. I got a psychology degree yeah, um, we had to participate in like four studies a semester um or write an additional paper for every class and I never wrote that paper <laughs> um <laughs> So it had sixty-four people total, um, and it divided the groups into the homophobic group, which was thirty-five, and the control group. Yes, self-report. There was, it was an assessment, um, but it was like a self-report assessment. Um, So a a Likert scale, um, and that's how they judged who was homophobic and who wasn't. Wow. Um, so flaws so, begin, right? And even in the recruiting
0: and randomization process.
2: Yep. So the wow. homophobic group 35, control 29. It's not even an even split. It's not even an even split. Um, and we should also say that 64, while it seems like a lot of people, when we're talking about empirically based research, it's not. It's a very small number of people. Yeah. Um. So a little more... Um, context is that the the students were between the ages of 20 and 31 years old um so fairly young um i have never been in the possession of a penis um but i get the distinct impression that like starting in early puberty to like even later in life like there's not a lot of reasons like to keep you from getting an erection it just kind of happens sometimes that's the rumor um this has been confirmed for me by multiple people I've asked. Um, I've Davis only owners. asked friends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I think, importantly, that um, homophobia was actually a type of phobia listed in the DSM in 94. Yeah. Um, this is not an evidence-based thing, and it has since been taken out. Um, but it looks like they were trying to couch this research in the idea that it was a real phobia. Yeah. Um, Which is another problem because, yeah, we'll get into this more, but this is one of the very best examples of straight people doing research on queer people. Yeah. And when they do that, they don't ask queer people about what their problems are. They assume them. They're like, this is the problem or this is the interesting thing I want to know because I don't understand these people. So I'm going to watch them like the nature channel. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, so during that time, um, homosexual, homosexuality was in the DSM. It was listed as such. Yes. Um, and the ICD-10 also had it listed as a disorder. Wow. Um, yeah. so again, um, more reasons why if you were queer and you participated in this, you wouldn't say so. Right. Um, cause yeah. you were seen as mentally ill. Yeah. Um, so the link between homophobia and homosexuality has never actually really been tested. That was the hope of what they were doing, but they were bad at it. Well, and I, and I think as you were indicating, what they wanted to
0: show was that there was a link. I mean, they weren't yes. really curious. They were trying to
2: support their own hypothesis. That was their hypothesis. Yeah. That was the heart of it. Um, and I, I have sincere doubts that they told them that that's why they were doing it. Yeah. Um, Informed consent exists um, in research, but back then it was a much looser thing. And even nowadays, people will frequently not really tell you what their research question is when you fill out all of that informed consent paperwork. Yeah. Interesting. Um, They'll give you like a general idea of it, Mm -hmm. but they're not going to tell you exactly what their hypothesis is. Yeah. Um, So like I said, latent homosexuality was kind of, the thing that they were looking at. Um, so they, they showed people porn. That's what they yeah. did. Um, and that porn consisted of, let me double check. Yeah. Like okay. different. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. go ahead. They had three different types of porn. Um, so it was just straight heterosexual porn, um, gay porn and lesbian porn. Right. I think part of, uh, they, what they were hoping was that, um, if you were a gay you would not enjoy lesbian porn because um, you don't like women um, right. it also exists in this weird binary like like they don't understand that bisexual men exist and might be one of the participants here yeah um, or that sex is arousing yeah like
0: in a general sense. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I have watched, I, like, maybe this is too much, but I have watched a variety of porn and, like, it doesn't really fall into gender norms right. uh, in any way at all, because that's who I am. I am pansexual. We're here for everybody. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I mean, I think it really underscores this,
0: you know, this is not unique to this study, this idea. And I mean, it. these researchers obviously had, they made some big mistakes. And also, as we learn more about implicit bias and the ways that our assumptions about the world shape how we behave in the world, you can see how this study got designed by people who had, like you said, completely incorrect assumptions about sex, about sexuality, about arousal. Like there was all kinds of stuff that they were just using heteronormative binary sort of like deviant non-deviant i mean coming out of this idea of homosexuality actually being a mental illness you can you can really understand how this was so poorly designed in retrospect
2: yeah um so (sighs) let's do you have any questions yet about what i'm going over
0: <laughs> so many, but no. I mean, I think I'm curious about, um, yeah. How did they? How did they read the results? Which, again, to go back, not to belabor the point, but these biofeedback devices that the subjects were attaching to their own penises may or may not have been attached in the right place, in the right way. So we have possibly inaccurate readings. But basically, they were looking at blood flow in response to various visual stimuli and, and then just basically taking that as an indicator of whether or not these people were homosexual.
2: Yes. Um, I, I have a, a a wonderful friend who is also a researcher and I talked to him and I was like, okay, so you have a penis and you (laughs) would have a general understanding of what someone between the ages of 20 and 31 who identifies as a man might do of put in the context of having to put this thing around your penis.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's
2: like, Yes. Uh, and, and I was like, What is the likelihood that they put this around like the biggest around piece that they could find? He's like, It's incredibly <laughs> it's high. Very likely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Especially not knowing the research question. If it has anything to do with size, I want to increase my chances.
2: Yep. So their findings, and this is a matter of millimeters, that's so incredibly important to understand, millimeters, um, showed, um, to quote there, in the homophobic group, 20% showed no significance, um, 26 showed moderate, and 54% showed definite, uh, I don't know how to say this word, I'm really sorry, tuminescence. Oh I yeah, think, yeah. It's like it's like engorgement, right? Yes, it got bigger. Um, so, fifty-four of them that happened when they were watching the homosexual video, as their words. Um, the corresponding percentages in the non-homophobic group were sixty-six um, percent for um, modest, ten uh, percent for, um, uh, okay. So 66 for none, uh, 10 for modest and 24 for definite. Um, so I want us to also think about, we've got 64 people total in the homophobic group. We have 35. What is 54% of 35 17ish 17 ish yeah, yeah. they're about so yeah. they have 17 people uh and that is how they decided this was real
0: <laughs> wow wow
2: but they i
0: mean as a as a person who is sort of i came out around when this study was published and i already had sort of internalized this message that you know i, I assume is somewhat Based on this, the word getting out about this quote unquote study. And it, it's fascinating to me that that is, it, it really wasn't until I heard you on Queer that I was like, oh, because I had been under this assumption myself, um, thinking, oh, yeah, okay, like it, it, it sort of tracks with my limited understanding of, I mean, I, I have a hard time going into the headspace of homophobia um, for understandable reasons. Um, but <laughs> like to, to hear you talk about the study and be like, "Oh, this is how public opinion shifts," and this is how—I mean—and this is even before the age of like Twitter and and news via headline. Um, where now we even have—I mean—everyone's up in arms because Subway doesn't put tuna in their sandwiches. It's like, no, they probably cook it; it's processed. Like, but the headline is "No Tuna Found in Sandwich," and I feel like this is <laughs> in the same in the same boat.
2: Yeah, science communication is a huge part of the problem when we're talking about research even good research Um, I feel like there are a couple other points that are really really important to touch on before we move on Um, no one's been able to replicate this study it was done in 1996 and it's never been replicated (laughs) Um, lack of interest replicated or just couldn't such a good question (laughs) People don't publish when they can't, when it doesn't show anything. Articles, uh, publications don't like that. You being like, I had a hypothesis and I proved it wrong. They don't care. They don't care. Right. It's another part of the problem because we've sensationalized research. Yeah. Um, It also creates an issue of like, if the original piece was published by some big name in the field, or if this defined a scientific movement, having a study that shows that it was incorrect.
0: Doesn't get any traction.
2: Especially if maybe, you know, they're a big name in the field. Right. And they sit on an editorial board of a research journal. Yeah. No, right. no conflict there. None. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, wow. Fun fact. If you know that someone is on the board of the the place that you want to publish and you have the ability to, like, add their stuff into your study, you are going to be, like, more likely to succeed. So,
0: Wow. Right.
2: It's like when you write a paper in college, uh, I don't know if everyone has this experience, but you include a citation of something that your professor wrote just because like, I mean, why not? It's there. Right. (laughs) Little brown nosing. Yeah, totally. Oh man. So, so yeah. So
0: that's an important point. It hasn't been replicated uh, for reasons that we could spend the rest of the day talking, (laughs) hypothesizing about.
2: Here's, here's another point that research has proven. Um, increased penile tuminescence mm-hmm. correlates to high anxiety huh um, so maybe part of what they were doing was like oh uh, it's a phobia anxiety right but someone just closed you in a room with porn in 1996
0: yeah and it's like the metal thing around your penis.
2: Yeah, you're you're not having a great day. No, serving you. Very anxiety provoking. Yeah, um, and I imagine wow. like the stigma around that in the 90s was much worse. Like it would be less scary now, but this person was almost certainly the professor of these students. Yeah. Obviously, they had researchers helping them, but that only means that it was possible that this is another student. Doing right. the measurement.
0: Yeah, that's anxiety provoking. I mean, I would be curious about when when did the tuminescence uh when was it initiated? Like did some people start to experience that even before the visual stimulation? Just right. the experience of being in this room and participating in a study and all the pieces of like just the human experience of putting the equipment. That, on. Everything you described. Yeah, exactly.
2: Oh boy. Um, so there were two distinct groups also in the so-called homophobic group. Um, and I think that that's also important because it also points to this idea that like if there were two distinct groups inside of this, then they probably should have been made into three groups. Um, yeah. Which is another fault in the research. Um, it also means that they possibly didn't assess well for what they thought they were assessing for. Um, And the way to check that would have been to redo the experiment. Um, Yeah. And. So another explanation that people have suggested is that people who are really defensive um, to gay people um, might just be so averse to gay sex that it, it does make them scared like they are afraid um that is possible have you ever like i have been out in public and held hands with someone um and like someone started yelling at us oh yeah it was like it was scary for them yes um which you know makes it scary for you Um, right (laughs) right. yes (laughs) but if people will have that reaction to me holding hands with my girlfriend right like what's their reaction if like I sit you down and you now have to watch porn of this. Right. Right. Yeah. I also feel like, and there's nothing written on this. This is just an idea, a possibility, but people can quit research. That's part of the informed consent process. You can Mm -hmm. sign on and quit at any time. Yeah. And they can't use your data if you quit. Or if you don't quit, you still have the ability to pull your data. Even if you complete the study. Okay. at any point you can be like, no, you can't have this anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's entirely possible that they had people sign on for the study. Um, and they just didn't either. They quit partway through because like, Oh no, I didn't realize there would be porn watching. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, or like they, they went through it and they decided like, I, this makes me deeply uncomfortable. I don't want to be included in this.
0: Uh huh. Um, And there's no, that's, there's no, that's not included in the discussion of the paper. Right. Yeah.
2: And we touched on this already, the, the binary view of sexuality and gender, right? Yeah. They didn't ask if these people were men. They, this is a person who I see as a man who was assigned male at birth, has a penis. Yep. Here we go. You're in. Uh, Yep. And (laughs) again, like. None of them reported being queer in any way, but it's entirely possible that some of them were bisexual. Right. Um, and having lesbian porn there to try to correct for that. Wow. Just mind-blowingly bad. If you look at like the Pornhub year in review things, which are always very interesting, but slightly terrifying. Yeah. Um, You'll find that a lot of women watch gay porn. That's yeah. It's arousing for them. They enjoy uh-huh. that. Um, so again, it's this weird idea that like it, the gender of what you're watching matters. And for some people, maybe it does, right. Like, I don't want to discredit those people or invalidate those people, but porn's kind of porn, uh, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and I, I feel like, you know,
0: increased blood flow is such a non-specific thing to measure mm-hmm. that because there are so many things that as a human we would physiologically respond with an increase in blood flow to all kinds of places and to to decide that oh that's what this is um it, it again it's just another like serious flaw but again in at that time people going oh well I mean here we go so what were their conclusions what did they say they thought they found <laughs>
2: um they This has been presented um, in a lot of different ways, but in their own paper, they say, in our opinion, negative attitudes and cognitions toward homosexuality are probably not sufficient to warrant the label of homophobia. Interesting. Um, So they endorsed this idea that there was a correlation. Yeah. Yeah. But even in their own research, they undercut it. Even in yeah. their own publication, they were like, I mean, maybe not. shrug. Yeah, right. And so did they, I
0: know often at the end of a paper, it'll say sort of implications for future research. Did they have any suggestions about like where to go from here?
2: I I do not know. I suspected that they wanted more research on this. Um, they probably noted their sample size. Like, I've never read a paper that didn't. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I expect that they felt very confident in what they were saying. Um, maybe if they didn't, even if they didn't feel that way, you write it that way. That's how you write research. You can't use like, I think this you use, we found that. Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And what was the journal in which this was published?
2: Journal of abnormal psychology.
0: Wow. Okay.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: The Journal of Abnormal Psychology.
2: I feel like it's worth noting that, like, a lot of journals have outdated names. We have the Journal of Homosexuality. It's a fantastic journal, but it's got a terrible name. Yeah. They could change it. You can change the name of a journal. It happens all the time. All the time. But they have not.
3: Wow. Wow. Hello, podcast listeners, just a brief brief pause to tell you about HealWell's upcoming Social Justice in Healthcare Conference. Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare is a two-day virtual conference that will take place October 9th and 10th of this year. We have a great lineup of really interesting folks who are going to talk about many aspects of Social Justice in Healthcare. The conference has been approved for eight hours of continuing education credit for multiple healthcare professions, so uh, you, can, you can get continuing healthcare credit and hear from people about topics like health and incarceration, creative solutions to healthcare accessibility, uh, about weight bias in healthcare, about uh, healthcare and disabilities all kinds of excellent topics in this conference. If you're unable to attend in, in real time, you will have access to the recordings for up to a year after the conference is over, so don't let that stop you. And in addition to the two days of quality content and amazing discussions, your conference fee includes a one-year membership to Heal Well's online interdisciplinary community so you can continue these conversations and even start new ones. Um, So we hope you'll check that out. That's Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare, Heal Well's two-day virtual conference. And the link will be in the show notes. Thanks. So I'm really
0: interested in this this thing you said earlier about scientific communication because I I feel um, we are really we are really in a place right now as, as a planet where we don't understand how to use science. We don't even understand how to conduct science. Um, I I am really curious about um, any insight you have about those issues and sort of what is being done, what's not being done. And, and I'm sad to see that I feel like this is yet another place where white supremacy comes in and, you know, patriarchy and all of these systems that need to be broken down to really create equity and truth and all of that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first thing I want to talk about is science communication. The people who write the articles that tell you what scientific papers say, most of them don't have any kind of background in science. Um, Like you have exceptions to that rule, like Cara Santa Maria, who's a freaking rock star. Mm -hmm. Um, But most people are like, journalism folks and that's fine this is literally their job i write this up so that you know what it says um but our media isn't done in a way like we tell you what's happening um that's that's what we do we stopped doing that in like the 70s right because we changed how we market media it's not based on like anything but finding money for advertisers right so they are incentivized to make things sensational and exciting so that you will click on it or you will watch their show and their sponsors can get more money. Um, this is not a system everywhere, right? America didn't have to do this. We chose to do this. Right. Um, it's like with the BBC and even the BBC has issues about this, but like, it's about um, getting people to watch or getting people to read. Um, and the best way to do that is, to, to put it in the title that it's something interesting. Also, the people who write the studies, uh, the re- people who write the, the write-up for the research are not the people who name the article.
3: Mm-hmm. They are
2: different people. And you will frequently see things like somebody saying you shouldn't say this in the research article of like, this is not what this means, but that's what the title was, um, which is also deeply alarming um, because these are marketing people naming this or editors naming this. And again, yeah. the incentives are there. Um, so it's a failure in the system that we have designed and we have no way to correct it um, because there's no money in correcting it. Right. And we live in a capitalist hellscape.
0: Yes, we do. <laughs> That's our title uh, of this episode. Exactly. <laughs> Science is a capitalist hellscape. Uh, Yeah. And it it does feel, I mean, we at Healwell, we do research and we publish research and we work with physicians and nurses and statisticians and all the people that come together in those pieces. And and it is, um, you know, you get reviews back sometimes and you think, oh, like, they just don't want our paper. Like, you know, they're, they're trying to make it look like if you just make these edits, but basically they don't like what we're saying. And so unless we make it say what they want, they're just not going to publish it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of the really important things that is often neglected in the conversation of research is this idea that research is unbiased, which is a crock. It's a (laughs) crock. It's terrible, right? Um, Because no matter what No matter who you are, you have a research agenda. Absolutely. Even if like you are not a like a social scientist, right? Say you're like a botanist, right? The way you were taught to do things um, is going to be different from the way another botanist was taught to do things. So if we give like the outline, like a research question to six different botanists, we are going to get six entirely different research proposals because they were taught by different people who have different perspectives on the field. So just the way you do research creates a bias because this is your system. This is how you think, this is how you think it would be best to go through this. Yeah. You might have outside collaborators who are going to give you perspective on this, but it's still your research. You're, you're the first author, right? Um, yeah. On top of that, who gets to do research? It's people who finish their degrees yeah. and there's something to be said for the value of education, Right. I wouldn't be able to do the research I do without the education I have. But it's also so important to talk about the fact that education isn't accessible to everyone, right? Yes. I have had to cry and bleed and sweat um, and get all kinds of things. um, And it's literally only my stubbornness that has kept me here. The Academy is not built for queer people, for people of color, for people with disabilities, right? I have to beg for accommodations at every university I go to. Mm -hmm. And even when I get them, they talk me down. Like my doctor is like double time. I get time and a half because they're afraid to ask for provisions from professors. A lot of people's disabilities are discounted, right? You have to fit into these broad categories. And if yours is outside of this, they don't know what to do with you. And frequently they will turn you away. Um, the process for getting accommodations is really, really hard, and a lot of universities have really, really bad systems. Um, so that's a huge piece of it. Um, but another part is like you got to find a university that is willing to take you. Um, and with my CV, there's universities that are going to be afraid of me. It's a real, true fact. I I study queer people. My research is queer. Um, and I've got a lot of things to say on it that mainstream people aren't going to like, and this is a a barrier that comes up everywhere, right? I'm in counseling. So I've got a better in than most people do because we, we value things like that more than other professions. Um, but I want like, do you know what the dropout rate in PhD programs is? It's huge. Um, almost it's so incredibly rare for an entire cohort to graduate oh wow Um, and if the entire cohort graduates also think about the fact that usually there's like between six and ten of them depending on the program right um there are higher numbers but at least in my profession if you have higher numbers than that we frequently like we're wary of your program right because how (laughs) is everybody going to get the individualized attention they need yeah. Um, maybe if your program has, like, 12 professors, you can handle uh, a cohort of 24. But in counseling, we usually have, like, six to eight professors in a department. Yeah. Um. So it it gets really complicated really quickly. And I don't think a lot of people understand that because they didn't want to be academics, right? And God bless those people because it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> I, I am... I'm here because I love it because people can't push me out. Um, But there are also days where I'm like, it's not worth it where I hit this barrier. I have had so many people tell me that my research is niche. um, That it is not where people need to know things that if I want to be respected in the field, I can't focus on queer research. That's not what people need. I've also gone to people who are very experienced in the field, right? People who have been doing research into things like group work since before I was born. Right. And I'm like, I would like to do research on group work with queer people. And they're like, I don't really feel comfortable with that. And I'm just like, I understand a little bit. Right. But one, like what? (laughs) And two, You've been doing research in this area, like I said, before. I, since before I was born. You are imminent. You are an expert. How different do you think queer people are from, like, regular people? With-
0: <laughs> from regular people? <laughs> totally. Yes. Well,
1: and how expert uh, can you be if you're only studying a percentage of the population?
2: Right. And here's the thing. Like, I, I by no means feel like I could call myself an expert in like the queer experience i probably could but i'm also very scared of the term expert uh, because uh why wouldn't you be um but with with their powers and my powers combined like we could do something beautiful but they're afraid and i don't know if this comes from a place of like being worried about not serving the community well or if this is something that like, they're so uncomfortable with the idea of queerness that they can't even bring themselves to research it. Yeah,
1: and that's what I mean in the broader landscape of those who are considered um, the leaders, let's say, in psychological research. If they're afraid to allow or support, let's say, their PhD students in exploring the broader landscape of humanness, and all the way that we present, how can they be the leader in the field if they're if they're having such a tight or narrow scope?
2: Yeah, and it's a, a constant issue. I know a lot of queer and trans PhD students. We network; we're a community, right? Um, and we there's no one who's not come against up against this wall of like I don't know if people are ready for that, or I don't want to be a part of that. Um, and I don't, I can't really understand why people are so afraid of us because, like, we're just really neat people. Like, you should love us. We're great. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I keep running into. Yeah. Um, I've heard so many horror stories about like creating a piece specifically for a journal because it really fits in everything that that journal's been been doing. Um, but they will say it's too niche, right? Like this only focuses on queer people, and it's like, yep. Yeah, The other stuff you do only focuses on straight people. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be a problem. (laughs) We've, we've somehow become this minority in a way that I find really alarming because they act like we're incredibly rare. Yeah. Um, And that's less and less true every single day. Um, And like the generations that are coming up as someone who does therapy primarily with queer youth, they we're the gayest we've ever been. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like, I mean, and I will look
0: forward to you being like, wow, that's not actually right at all. But my sense is that it's never, we've never actually been as binary as it's been imagined. And that what's happening is people are just finding space to be what and who they are. And it's hopefully going to continue to become safer and safer to be that. And I wonder though, as you talk about, you know, the, the sort of fear around this, that you know, there's so many pieces of, of what you just shared with us, and I think in our work in massage therapy, trying to do research on a highly experiential intervention and to look at, you know, the gold standard is still for all research, quantitative, right? And like qualitatives great, but it's not real research, you know, and people kind of look at it like, well, that's cute. So anyway, show me the numbers. And you know, I, I feel like we've learned so much in the qualitative, research we've done about the experience of receiving massage that, you know, you can show me that your cortisol levels go down, or you can show me that you have these sort of more measurable things that happen after massage, but that doesn't actually tell me about what it's like to be you while this is happening. And I I feel like it's going to be such a huge paradigm shift for our society to care about that and to really make that something that informs the way we care for each other and the way we understand what it means to be a human. And I think that's really scary to the establishment, for lack of a less, you know, uh, conspiracy theory kind of word, that that is not how how we've always done it. And it sounds really scary and squishy and nuanced, which is also what being a human is like. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah. there's this very toxic idea that qualitative research isn't real research. Um, And as someone who's like a mixed methods researcher, I hate that with my whole heart. Um, Being quantitative limits the questions you can ask and the answers you can get. It's made for generalized things and very little of the human experience is generalized. I love a good randomized controlled trial for does this medication work? That's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. But translating that into, like, social work or counseling or just any kind of social science, like, how do you answer any question that you have outside of, like, do people experience discrimination? Yes, no. The answer is yes. Fun fact. Yes. It's just <laughs>
1: yes. Are, are humans, this is not something you can self-report. Are humans biased? <laughs> yes, no. Yes.
2: Yes, they
0: are. Yes. Right. But this police officer said that their motives weren't racially based. Well,
2: then, I think probably they weren't. I mean, moving on. Yeah. yeah, um, And it really does kind of fly in the face of the scientific establishment. Um, but here's the thing. They deserve that. <laughs> yeah. Talk um, about they, making your own bed. They have earned this. Um, and they want to pretend, like I said, that they don't have any bias. That they are exceptional. That everything they do is evidence-based. But let's even talk about how like, anything in psychotherapy that's considered evidence-based like let's talk about cbt cbt can be really valuable and really beneficial and there are a lot of people who've had a lot of good outcomes from it this is not me trying to say cbt doesn't work but it is based in this idea that you are looking at things incorrectly and that is causing you anxiety or whatever symptoms you're having right um but it's based in this foundational idea in psychology that if you are having symptoms, you are what's wrong. Right. You are broken and we can fix you. Yes. And it pathologizes oppression. It means that like, oh, you are a black person in modern America and you're scared all of the time. That's on you. Right. Right. It's your pathology. The oppressors are not the ones who who have the pathology. Right. <laughs> and all of psychology is based on this. All of yeah. it. Yeah. There are definitely people doing work to try to fix that, but let's think about what that means in every kind of very generalized research, right? Um, We are working under the assumption that the people outside of the norm are a problem. And we don't account for the shifting of norms in the vast majority of research. Um, Norms are assumed, Um, There are always assumptions in research. It is impossible to get out of them. But when was the last time that you saw a quantitative paper that went into depth about assumptions based on like their population or what this could mean for the larger world or anything uh, based, based on like social roles or intersectionality? One of the problems with quantitative research is we give you a list for demographics and you can pick one thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to say intersectionality as a concept is a nightmare for quantitative research.
2: <laughs> right. Um, I, I've had to have very serious conversations with, with uh, researchers because they'll, they'll send me something and I'll be like, does this survey look okay? Does this seem okay? And I'll be like, why is it cisgender women and trans women? Are you trying to imply that trans women aren't women? Um, and that's not their assumption. It's, it's the message that they're sending, but it's not their assumption. They have to break apart the categories. You cannot be more than one thing. And that's not the human experience.
0: Right.
2: When we get to that drop down menu that asks about your sexuality, I'm I am an a panromantic asexual. I can pick asexual or I can pick pansexual. And that's if they give me that option, because usually what I get is LGB. Yeah. I'm right. not bisexual. Yeah. Nope. It's not a thing. Um, so when we try to put people in boxes, we ruin research and it creates a bias that's already there. Right. Um, and there are people who, and it's, it's not wrong to argue this, right? I'm not here to call anybody wrong or bad. I'm here to point out problems in the hope that like we can fix them. Um, and finding problems is a lot easier than finding solutions. Um, there's a lot of people who want like people who are generally queer, maybe they're pan, maybe they're asexual, maybe whatever to mark the buy. Um, because, you know, if you're asexual and you don't experience sexual attraction, that's a very linear view of asexuality and I'm not endorsing it, but like you're just as sexually attracted to men as you are women. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. Um, and I think that that can be valuable and that it's important to add numbers, Right. Because if we're doing this in a a quantitative way, existing is important and being able to quantify how many of us that there are can be really valuable. But again, we're endorsing this idea that we have to limit ourselves and we shouldn't ever have to do that. I don't want to be broken down into bite-sized pieces that you can swallow. That's not why I exist in this world. I am not your acceptable, agreeable gay. Right. Right. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well and if you, you if you're a scientist you should want to really know and not be afraid of how quote unquote hard it is to actually capture your subject's experience.
2: Yeah. And the the beautiful thing about research is that nobody finishes research with all of their questions answered. As okay. you are doing the research you come up with more questions. No research study is the beginning and end of anything. You build upon what already exists. Yeah. Um, the problem with that, in some ways, is that for people like me, there's not a lot of research that already exists. Who has already investigated the experiences of trans and gender expansive folks in supervision as counselors and training? Right. Um, there's not a published th- publication that exists on that right now. I know that right. there are people working on it, but it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so I come to people with these ideas and they're like, okay, but you got to have a good foundation. And I'm like, I have to build it. <laughs> the foundation. I yeah. understand I'm a junior scholar that I don't have my PhD yet, but there's nothing to build on. Right. What do you want me to do besides make something?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Now, maybe this is getting off topic, but I feel like it probably isn't. Um, I'm a tangent
2: person. Go for
0: it. What What can you say about paywalls? It's besides that they suck. Oh, and they God. Um, because I feel like if you want to look at, like, patriarchy in in science, paywalls are, you know, and the idea that advanced education is the only way to be able to participate. I feel like as a person who my research participation is actually enabled by people who have advanced education. And I, as a person with a bachelor's degree in English literature, am able to participate and, and write research papers. Um, but I am often having to leverage my relationships with people at big institutions to get access to the research that would support my understanding of what already exists. And it really does keep out people who could be bringing valuable lived experience to the body of research out of research.
2: Yeah. And you know how I just said that, like, I'm not here to say people are doing it wrong. Here's the exception to that. If your research isn't accessible to a layperson, you're a bad researcher. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I know that there are a huge number of facts and figures and like there are tables and like you can't easily distill your research down into like an elevator pitch, right? But there are ways of taking what you found and making them accessible. Paywalls ruin that. No one can afford to pay $20 a study or more. Um, No one can afford a subscription to a journal. And the places that do pay for that are always universities. Your local library doesn't have access to to whatever, like, psychological database I dive into every time I want to write a paper. Yeah. Yeah, because you never want to see one study.
0: You know, like you go and see one and you're like, oh, but I need to see this other one and this other one. And then you're like, oh, I guess I'm stuck because I don't I don't have 300 bucks to buy all these studies. And
2: yeah. Yeah. A research paper cannot be written on a single study. It's literally impossible. And no research can be couched in a single study. Um, There are always outside factors. Um, And paywalls make it inaccessible to anybody who doesn't have money. Yeah. Um, and that's like the majority of people, if you look at the prices for academic work. Um, and more bafflingly, the researchers don't make that money.
0: No, I was going to say, right, because the study is paid for. The researchers aren't collecting royalties. Like this is all fat for the universities and the wherever that money goes. It doesn't go to the people who did the
2: work. Right. And a lot of the time, the research has federal funding or some kind of public funding, right. but we can't access any of that. Yeah. Even though we sort of paid for it. We
0: definitely paid for it,
2: <laughs> right? but we can't access it. It's, it's like we pay this subscription, but like we have to pay additional money yeah. to get the results. It's like yeah. how drug companies make us pay for things, even though we're already funding things. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of, problems with the system in that way, especially because funding frequently is afraid of minority groups. If you want things based in like working with minority groups, you have to ask for people who are like doing that research. And there's a very limited number of groups that are willing to fund that. In fact, there are groups that are actively funding anti-diversity efforts Um, And we see these in like literally SBLC registered hate groups. Um, They're the people who are putting forward like the anti-trans legislation who are trying to keep me and my clients from existing in, in society. Yes. Um, And they couch that in research and they pay for it. Um, And everybody's, and then they want to talk about how research is unbiased. Right. So we see the cycle as it perpetuates all of the harm that exists Um, There's open access journals, but they also cost a stupid amount of money to publish in. If I wanted to publish something in an open access journal, I would have to have like $2,000. Right. I am a PhD student. I have $2,000 for exactly nothing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, right.
2: Which also means that only established academics can do it. Or it has to be something that's figured into the grant funding. And who's going to give you an additional two thousand dollars for that? Right.
0: Yeah. So I want to make sure that we. So um, SPLC is the Southern Poverty Law Center, and um, if you don't know about them already, you should definitely look them up because they do incredible work to try to stem the flow and tide of hatred and uh, such in our country, uh, in the United States. That is, I don't, I don't know if you guys have an equivalent, uh, Kathy, in Canada, but um, oh, I'm sure you have good. no shortage of hate. Yeah. We have we have um, no
1: shortage of hate, that's for sure,
0: but Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and I want to make sure that we don't skip over um you mentioned earlier Gene uh Cara Santa Maria and if if you guys don't already know about her, she actually is an American science communicator. Uh and she hosts she hosts a podcast uh I think called Nerdy Talk Nerdy and I Talk think she's Nerdy. the co-host of a um is the Skeptics Guide to the Universe still uh going on. That's another podcast that she
2: uh was a co-host of. I don't know if it's still going on, but if, even if it's not, it's worth Go back and their listen. entire back catalog. It's great. Definitely. Um, so definitely
0: check, uh, check those, uh, shows out and just look up Kara Santa Maria. She's and, also
2: working on like, I believe a psychology degree, like a clinical one right now. Oh, so she cool. should be recently, she should have already released some of her own, like, uh, publications because she has a, a science background before that too. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. And then, I think we sort of explained
0: it, but if you don't know what a paywall is, that's when you try to go look at a study and it says, here's the abstract, but if you want to read the whole paper, that'll be $30 or that'll be $25 or it'll be $20 if you read it within the next 24 hours. Uh, and so it is this thing that really prevents lay folk and people like us who are quasi lay folk, uh, Kathy and myself, but who don't, aren't directly affiliated perhaps with a university or a a hospital that has access to those things. So Yet another place where we have a lot of work to do in terms of equity and access. So if there was if there was one thing, maybe two things, that you like if you woke up tomorrow, Gene, and you were like, "Oh, thank God, this is no longer a thing." what what would be the things that would sort of improve our world in terms of science communication or anything in this whole big ball of, of worms that we just unveiled?
2: I think that it would be that publications <clears throat> are based not on, like, what is the most interesting, but accurate, true things. That you could publish something that was like, I thought this was a cool idea, and it turns out it's incorrect. Um, or, you know, we redid this study that's considered foundational, uh, and it shows that, like, they were wrong. Um academia is afraid of itself. Yeah. Um and we've stopped being so much the purveyors of knowledge as enforcers of the status quo.
0: Mhm.
2: gatekeepers. Um and that's it's a huge ugly problem and I don't know what the answer is, but it we need to stop being the hoarders of knowledge and start giving it back. And I don't know how to do that best, but I'm trying. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it 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 just emboldens me, and I'm sure Kathy. In in everything we do, I hope that our listeners are excited about this. But it comes back to racism and white supremacy and the systems that are so solidly established and embedded in our society that to change this, we have to change that, and to change that, we have to change ourselves. And so, you know, we, we need to do things on a policy level, but there's so much individual work and surrender and like retooling that has to happen in each of our hearts and minds to be able to notice when the status quo is being upheld and to be able to say and do things to shift that and to make that idea of like the the tectonic plates of our structures constantly shift so that people can stop believing that it's solid. Um, and how many of us have to keep doing that to, to get to a place where we can we can do what you just described I mean the idea that we could publish research that didn't show a thing oh. <laughs> or like you said that challenges a, a quote, quote unquote, foundational finding.
1: And all the distraction uh, that is created that draws us away from really seeing the heart of the issues of colonialism and the construct of that and racism. So all this distraction goes on that draws us away from really seeing what truly the heart of the issues and everything that we talked about is rooted in.
2: Yeah. If you are in a place in your career or in your life where you are able to disrupt these norms, do it. Do it as hard as you possibly can. Um, I know that that's not something everyone can do, right? I'm not asking people who are in unsafe spaces to be vulnerable and do that work if their safety is in danger. But if you can, you should. If you don't leverage your privilege, whatever that is, even if you have other minoritized identities – you're you're not helping people. And I, I I can't say this enough. You should care about other people. That's the point of human existence.
0: Absolutely. And I and I, I think that the thing that there are some of us who will make a big Resistance and really leverage our privilege in very visible ways that are perhaps riskier than others. But I think that the so that everyone feels like they're part of this invitation you just offered, sometimes just not participating is resistance. Yeah. And sometimes just not agreeing to sign a thing or be part of a something is enough. And so if that's the level of resistance that you're able to muster, then that is still important. And noticing where you're being complicit and stepping away from that complicity is a huge part of what will eventually add up to be a different society that we have an opportunity to create and then
3: later. Uh, and you can oh, man. Well, I would love
0: to talk to you for a whole lot longer. Um, and I know you have less org. fun things to do today. Podcast and maybe you'd rather PLL. talk to us too.
3: <laughs> but thank listening.
0: you so much for, um, for sharing your insight and, and wisdom and, and unflinching advocacy with us. Uh, I hope that our listeners feel as excited about what you've shared with us as I do. Um, Kathy, thanks for always uh, tossing in your uh, insightful two cents and uh, bringing the Canadian perspective. Oh, hey, um, as always,
1: this is such a pleasure for me to be part of this and to be able to learn and grow and expand as a human.
0: So get out there, you guys, and uh, wherever you can challenge the status quo, do that and make sure that uh, one of the ways you do that is to go out on social media and tell people that uh, if you thought this was a good use of your time today to uh, invite other people to use their time by listening to the show, remember our contest going on for season three, Go leave us a review. And if we read it on uh, an upcoming show, you'll get to pick a shirt, a mug, or a 30-minute hangout with me and Kathy. And uh, we will look forward to being with you again next week. Jean, thanks again so much for spending your time and love with us. And uh, best wishes to see you.
2: Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And if you want to reach out for any reason, just, just let me know. Hit me up.
0: We will. All right. Thank you all. See you next time on Interdisciplinary.